There's crispy, and then there's crispy, er. Try our new and improved Tyson crispy chicken strips. Crispy just got crispy, er. Hello, everyone. You're listening to HBCU 468, the Roden Fellows Podcast. I'm Bill Roden, and it's the first week of April, which means March Madness is coming to a close. I'm actually on my way to the men's final four in Minneapolis.、Uh, Janae Adams from Clark Atlanta University in Atlanta is on the line.、Uh, Janae, long time no talk to. How, how's it going? How you, how, how's your bracket doing? Hey,、uh, my bracket's busted. It's been busted for a while. I had Michigan winning my bracket, so yeah, it's it's, it's over with. <laughs> and Tucker too from Morehouse College. Uh, in Atlanta,、uh, is also on the line. Tucker, how's it going? How, how have you been? I'm good. I'm good. And my bracket was all kind of busted. Well, you know, you, you've got a lot of company. I mean, I think I don't think anybody's got a perfect bracket.、Um, but we, we've got a very awesome、uh, lineup today. First up, ESPN's own play-by-play commentator Tiffany Green is going to join us to talk about the women's NCAA basketball tournament. And why such strong competition gets such little attention? And then in the second half of the show, we're going to talk about、uh, Nipsey Hussle with Money B from the rap group Digital Underground. But、uh, let's get right into March Madness. The men and women's NCAA basketball tournament has finally reached the apex.、Uh, I think it's safe to say that March Madness has lived up to his nickname for the most part.、Uh, Somehow, all the favorites in the men's tournament have failed to make it to the final four. I think we've got one number one seed,、uh, and the women's tournament has arguably been much more exciting. In fact, I don't even think there's、uh, an argument. It's been much more exciting.、Uh, UConn, Notre Dame, and Baylor found their way back to the final four, while upstart Oregon is making history with his first trip to the Big Dance in program history. The women.、Um, Here to to talk to us more about the exciting women's tournament is ESPN play-by-play commentator, the great Tiffany Green.、Uh, Tiffany covers a variety of、uh, collegiate sports, including basketball, football, softball. Janae Janae Adams she covers softball and volleyball,、uh, and more than that, Tiffany is a Florida A&M grad. And is the first African American woman to serve as a play-by-play commentator for college football on a major network. Yes, welcome to the show,、mm-hmm. Tiffany. Wow, what an introduction! I need that every day, all day. Appreciate it. Glad to be on with you. Yeah, and that's great, great, great stuff. Wow, great stuff. I mean, <laughs> like you guys are in the. I, I say I shouted out Janae Adams because Janae Adams, who you'll meet,、uh, is down at Clark Atlanta. She's a senior, but she's also. Uh, on the softball team at Clark, so you know,、oh, through that, fantastic. yeah, thank you. It's one of the fastest growing sports in the country.、Right. Back in the 2020 Olympics, I mean, the ratings continue to rise over the last several years. It's prime time ESPN. I mean, it's it's been great. More than 1,200 softball games being produced this year. So I think that's a testament to just the rise in interest. That's great. Uh, hey, so so Tim, let's just kind of get right into this.、Um, you you got to be pretty stoked that the Final Four is coming to your hometown.、Uh, you've been covering women's college basketball all season long. 
Let me ask you, is this the final four matchup that uh, you expected? Oh, I think uh, yes, because the seeds held true, right, uh, for two of the teams. And uh, when you spoke of that Oregon upstart team, you know, Kelly Graves has done an amazing job out there in Eugene, and they were always on the brink, and they were finally able to push through and make it to their first ever Final Four. They have a fantastic player in Sabrina Yanescu, a triple-double machine, uh, career leader in that for NCAA basketball. So, I think yes there. And then UConn, I think everyone was so surprised to hear them as a number two seed as opposed to number one. So while they are a bit of an underdog, they still have a ton of tradition that they're riding in on 11 national championships. So you kind of expect to see them in the tournament year in and year out. And this year they didn't disappoint. Uh, Notre Dame, the defending national champions, uh, they're a team that has only gotten better. You know, you look at last year, they had a ton of adversity, missing several players uh, due to injury, and they still were able to come through with a national title. And now everybody's back healthy. Ariki Agumbawale is playing phenomenal basketball. Jackie Young, Jessica Shepard, I mean, everybody has just uh, come together and gelled so nicely. And then the front runner all year, uh, for a lot of the year, has been Baylor. Uh, coming out of the Big 12, I mean, they owned that territory. Uh, and Kalani Brown and Juicy Landrum, with a with a name like that, you you got to be involved. Uh, so, um, I, I, I think that um, this is uh, prime time premier matchups that you'll want to see in the women's final four. Yeah, Tiffany, Janae, and I had the opportunity to see Baylor front front row in, in person um, at the Big 12 tournament. We saw them win that Big 12 championship, and we saw how dominant they were. Can you talk about how, you know, um, dominant they've been so far in the tournament? I've seen they've just been blowing teams out the water on their way to the Final Four. Yeah, I mean, I, when you look at their path to get there, um, you know, they had to knock down a few teams, Iowa, uh, was their was their latest victim on the way to the Final Four, but I, I think it's just a testament to Kim Mulkey and the job that she's done. You know, they've won a couple of national titles, and everyone felt like, okay, when you had special players uh, come through that program, you expect them to get to a certain level, and so they've been able to take down the teams that they're supposed to, and maybe kind of surprise them. I think they only came in with, you know, one loss. But more importantly, it's tough to teach and coach Gen 6 7, you know. Uh, and so when you have a player like Kalani Brown who is able to just dominate inside, she's such a fun player to watch. Uh, and then you add to that, or excuse me, Lauren Cox, I think that the front court for Baylor has been so tough to contend with all year. A lot of teams just haven't been able to come up with an answer for them, and I think that's why they, you know, carry a 34-1 record. And uh, they're my pick to win it in the Final Four, excuse me, in the National Championship. I would agree. I think they're, I think they're the, the ones to win. But despite um, there being high-playing teams like Baylor, who's, like, really good, and obviously UConn, and some other teams in Notre Dame. But TV ratings for the women's tournament tends to be lower than the men. So do you think the media shares any blame for this? Well, I definitely 
believe that they can take some of the blame because when, you know, you look at, you know, our network or any other uh, major network, you don't see women's highlights in there as frequently as the men's highlights. And they're playing just as many games as the men, and they're doing just as equally as impressive things on the basketball court to me uh, as the men are. And maybe they're not throwing down a dunk every you know, other play, but what they are doing is showing off incredible skill, talent, hard work, dedication. And so I wish that there was more of an interest in women's basketball as it continues to grow. You know, it, it's just sometimes a matter of seeing it and being, it being served to you uh, up on a plate. Uh, you'll see that this is like some, these are some really talented young women, and they have a ton to offer. Uh, and the product on the on the court, to me, is something that I actually prefer to watch more than the men's. I think the men's is a lot of isolation game. It's just, you know, shoot three-pointers, and, yes, they excite the crowd with dunks, but I want to see basketball being played, right? I, I want to see the ball being shared set being run in the half court, as well as people getting out in transition and running, but executing under the basket plays like coaches being, you know, put in situations where they have to drop the play and rely on their player. I, I, I think the women's basketball game provides a little bit more of that uh, kind of fundamental true-to-the-sport game uh, than I do think the men. Hey, hey Tiffany, what, you know, I, mean, I don't want to stay on that because this is an important point. You said you think – the media play we we do play sort of a male dominated media uh, uh, does play a part um, in this sort of bias toward the men. Um, how, how to how can people in decision making positions and reporters uh, change this script? Well, when you're looking at some of the major games that are being pumped up, for instance, uh, on a big Monday or, or on Sundays or whatever, put that in the lineup. Right. Make sure the men talk about it in their basketball games. Oftentimes, I'm always reading a promo about a big sonic blockbuster that's coming up for the men, but you don't as often hear it being cross-promoted in the in the men's game, where you're talking about the women's game. And and usually the conversation when I do hear it, and this is not to say all people do this, but it's a lot of UConn, right? They're the they're the easy team to talk about. They have had a dynasty, the most prominent basketball program in a long time, taking that over from, you know, Tennessee back when Pat Summit was there. So everybody knows UConn. And at one point there was there was conversation of are they bad for basketball because they're so dominant? And I think we have dispelled that myth, or hopefully we squashed that conversation that, yes, they are good for basketball when they're great. But it's also wonderful when you watch other teams come about, and we can continue to tell that story on a nightly basis in SportsCenter. We can continue to discuss it in our other uh, platforms and shows. I mean, I think it could be a part of the conversation just as much. And if you look at Sabrina Ionescu from Oregon, who, you know, called us out, quite honestly, and I applaud her, you know, for doing so to have the guts to at least do so and saying that, you know, maybe women's basketball isn't valued as much as the men's game. And clearly, you and I know that to be true. We talk about Russell Westbrook and James Harden, and I get it there at the pro level, you know, dropping triple-doubles. 
Well, she's doing the same thing in the women's game, and no other player has done it the way she's done it. She's a history maker, so we should give her her due or props. Sierra McCowan uh, is a terrific big, along with, you know, Megan Gustafson, who's been efficient over the last couple of years for her career. I mean, I think there are stories that are worth telling and sharing and are equally as compelling. But when you continue to show what the interest level is, I guess based on, you know, what ratings say, then uh, you, you're not going to change that, right? And, and, and what I have seen from, for instance, softball, where there's been a continuous push and push and push, that is a very tight-knit community, and they continue to show up when the big moments matter, and that's gotten the attention of ESPN. And I think the women's game, the, the Final Four and the National Championship, I think this year will prove to be just as good, if not better, than last year. Uh, Mississippi State kind of helped that out, right, with challenging UConn and making it interesting. Arike Gumbawale's, you know, last-second shots to eventually uh, allow the Fighting Irish to claim a national championship. Those moments matter, and they help to advance the story of, of, of women being, you know, more mainstream with, the, with, the bas- with women's basketball. You you were uh, uh, an athlete, right, Florida A&M? Yes. So I, I thought I was going to play basketball. My parents told me otherwise, and I ended up getting a bowling scholarship. Thank you, Title IX. Bowling? <laughs> bowling. Wow. That's not something you hear uh, very often. Tell us that story. Um, wow. Yeah, so I used to attend FAMU uh, for a couple of summers for enrichment programs, and while I was there – I would just go to the uh, lanes and bowl and play pool because I enjoyed it. My grandfather taught me how to play pool. I grew up in bowling leagues. So that was just something to kind of do. And when I got on campus as a freshman enrolled at Florida A&M, the guy who was running the bowling alley also happened to be the coach. And they had just started up a program not too long ago and he said, hey, you know, Tiffany, I remember you. You still bowl? I said, yeah. He said, well, why don't you roll me a game? And um, I said, sure. You know, you're never going to turn down some free bowling. Um, I had a skirt on, a tank top, and some sandals. Of course, I got outfitted with the right shoes, bowled a game, and he offered me a scholarship on the spot. So I, I bowled for two years, and we were pretty solid throughout the MEAC uh, our big competition was North Carolina A&T. But, uh, yeah, and we traveled. We had practices the whole, the whole nine. Yeah, you, uh, you, comp- you, you competed in the MEAC, so you know that the, uh, there, there are stories to be told amongst HBCUs as well. And like Sakala Hill, who had two quadruple doubles. Um, and I yeah. know HBCUs are usually – the lower seeds and typically get knocked out early. And there's always a conversation about, you know, if HBCU should have their own postseason tournament and just remove themselves from the NCAA tournament. What are your thoughts about that? Well, I don't know if they should remove themselves, and that's simply because, you know, I know it was a different day, but HBCUs used to be able to compete and won national championships against all competition, not just in, you know, a little bubble. 
And so I appreciate it. And we've seen the upsets, you know, over the last couple of years within uh, or last several years within men's basketball. And so I think that you should try to compete with the absolute best. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And if there is any notice, it's for HBCUs to continue to uh, invest the resources in their athletic programs. I think you and I can all agree that North Carolina A&T has uh, become the hottest HBCU over the last, you know, since 2015 when the Celebration Bowl came about. And then that inaugural Celebration Bowl, you had A&T versus Alcorn State. And the Aggies had a running back by the name of Tariq Cohen. The human highlight, yeah. the joy, joystick, I mean, just that kid was so fun to watch and cover. And he had been doing that all year long, and ESPN had done some features on him. But now he had been promoted to this bigger stage on ABC, and he showed out. And he racked up about almost 300 yards, and he goes on to win. And since that time, they have been uh, the cream of the crop in the MEAC. And they have won Celebration Bowl after Celebration Bowl. They could very well compete in the NFL playoffs and I think go deep if they didn't have to give up their, you know, uh, auto, you know automatically give that up. So the talent level is there. And, and what I would hope is that student athletes consider going to HBCUs. Uh, look, there's a lot of work to be done there, and maybe that's more of a dreamer kind of mindset, but I love the fact that Kevon Thibodeau thought about Florida A&M at HBCU, the number one recruit in the nation. He at least put it on the radar and put it on the map, and what if more student-athletes like him went back to HBCUs, where would we be? So the talent is there. What may be lacking a little bit are, are the resources and support sometimes, facilities, you know? Right. Our guest is a great Tiffany Green, ESPN, uh, extraordinary play-by-play person, and, uh, I mean, just really extraordinary, i, I got to say. Um, just just uh, before we let you go, Tiffany, two things. How you got from fam, fam, you to ESPN, sort of career advice, mm-hmm. and who you think is going to uh, win the national championship? Sure. Well, I started my relationship with ESPN when I was a junior in college, going up to Howard. They had a job fair there. I met a gentleman by the name of Fred Brown, who was in production. He said, just keep in touch with me. And I literally just kept in touch with him over the years. I would send him my information. And through NABJ, the National Association of Black Journalists, I got a chance to you know, see Fred on a yearly basis as well as meet others. Um, So one of the things that I feel like is uh, most important is staying connected with people. You know, you always hear networking, literally, network. Do what you can. Email, write a personal note when you're in town, reach out and say, hey, can I drop by? Um, Because... That stuff sticks, and people remember it when you're consistently doing it, and that's the key, being consistent. Um, And then charting the path of the course that 
you know, I wanted to go on. I always saw myself being there, uh, but I also wrote it down. I knew as young as five years old that I wanted to be a sportscaster and work for ESPN. And when I graduated college, I started out as a part-time production assistant, but I knew that ESPN was the end goal, and it took me 13 years to get there through local television and doing all types of jobs in the newsroom. But I didn't mind that because I wouldn't give anything for my journey. I've got a great appreciation for what everybody does on the crew because I probably have done it in some form or fashion. So being able to say this is where I want to go and then hold yourself accountable uh, by writing it down uh, was a huge key. Obviously, my faith played a a big part in it as well and uh, speaking it into existence more broadly, right? So being able to say, uh, I believe that this is going to happen and knowing that my actions are going to follow suit, but also others could hear that this is what I want to do, and perhaps they would be willing to aid me uh, along the way. And I can't begin to thank countless individuals who, uh, you know, just took my hand and guided me. Uh, And quickly, I already said, Baylor, on the women's side, on the men's, I'm never going to go against Sparty. And I think Duke, Learn their lesson that you just don't go against Sparty in the tournament. So Michigan State. You know, play-by-play is rare for African-Americans in any sport, men or women. And I was just curious to see how Tiffany, how she picked up on how she got into play-by-play. Right. And I was was curious about that as well because I do the the color analyst for Morehouse's football and basketball team. So I was curious about how you got into that. Yeah, so I did play-by-play briefly while I was at Florida A&M. I was a sports director for the radio station, and we had the opportunity to call softball games there. Uh, So I did softball games for the radio, and then we decided to pick up men's and women's basketball. So I tried my hand at it there uh, for a little bit and then got away from it because it's not something uh, that many – television stations, local broadcast affiliates are offering. So I went the reporter track and was a one-man band. When I got to Orlando, Florida, with Bright House Sports Network, which is now Spectrum Sports, they started up a 24-hour sports network, and we were covering a little bit of everything. We had 24 hours to fill, so we decided to cover and carry high school games. And I said, well, let me raise my hand. I've already done sideline reporting for our state football games why don't I you know do play-by-play for basketball and softball those are sports I'm a little bit more familiar with and then I later learned volleyball uh, beyond just you know covering it for highlights and I continued to just practice at it and try to hone my craft clearly love Robin Roberts Uh, I think she's a shero for so many I am no different in believing that and I remember she used to do it for women's basketball. You just, you know, listen in to different people. Um, Al Michaels, Pat Summerall, and John Madden. That was a great crew. And so, you know, as a as a youngster, you would try to mock or imitate what you heard. And then when I got a chance to get in the chair, I kind of did that same thing until I was able to find and create my voice. Uh, and then what I think lifted me to 
Another level was uh, working with Fox Sports 1, and, and a gentleman by the name of Roy Hamilton, who was an executive VP, saw my tape at National Association of Black Journalists Conference, gave me an opportunity and said, hey, I want you to call the inaugural package for Big East women's basketball on the, you know, Fox Sports 1. This is our first year doing it, and we want it to be you. And that was, was major. Um, because then I'd already had the practice. Now I got a chance to do it uh, on a on a grander stage, and to me that was that was those were two keys: Fox Sports One and Bright House Sports Network. Just having the opportunity to do it. Wow, well, that's that's, that's, wow. that's great, Tiffany. So happy, yeah. so happy it worked out. I'm so happy you're with the ESPN family. But um, we're just so proud of. Oh, absolutely! I'm and, so um, the worldwide HBC family. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So, Tiffany, thank you so much for giving us. This is really great. And, you, hey, you got to come back. But now, where where are you based? Tampa. Oh, you're in Tampa. Florida. So, yes, Women's Final Four in my backyard for the third time. Okay. Uh, all right. Hey, Tiffany, thank you so much. Uh, best of luck. Enjoy the tournament. And uh, we'll see you back on HBCU 468 uh, very soon. But thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you so Thank much. You, Thank you so much. Uh, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll talk about Nipsey Hussle. Y'all are going to talk about Nipsey Hussle and what his life meant to students and fellow artists uh, and why it has been such an outpouring, particularly from athletes, for Nipsey Hussle. So stay tuned. studio so i am leading this segment plus it just hits really close to home for tucker and i rapper and entrepreneur nipsey hustle aka ermias joseph Oxidom, was killed over the weekend the 33 year old father of two and partner to lauren london was shot outside of his clothing store since then his fans have been expressing sadness outrage and just how much his music and work improve his community in the crenshaw neighborhood of south la california meant to them Though he wasn't necessarily a household name before death to everybody, but his fan base included more than a few celebrities, including LeBron James, Steph Curry, DeMarcus Cousins, and even Russell Westbrook. There is also a suspect in custody, so we were paying close attention to how all this unfolds. But here to discuss Nipsey's life, music, and impact, Money B from the Oakland-based rap group Digital Underground. Yes, the group that is affiliated with Tupac and has done amazing music. And also, full disclosure, he's my cousin. Money B, welcome to the show. What's happening? So before we really dive in, I just want to acknowledge that Nipsey touched everybody on the line right now. So how did 
all of you first learn about his music and how are you feeling, you know, in the wake of what has happened? I heard, I first heard about Nipsey um, quite a few years ago and more so knowing his, you know, really knowing his music, I was knowing his movements and, you know, I have, I have, although I didn't know him personally, we've, we've come in contact maybe once or twice. Um, but I knew people that knew him and they always spoke highly of him. And every time that I would see or hear about him, it was always in a, in a, in a positive light. And even the time that I remember, um, we ran into each other at the, uh, all, all eyes on me premiere. And when I, I walked up to him because my niece who was with me asked for an autograph. So I approached him and was like, yo, Nip. And he just, you know, he spoke to me as if he knew me for a long time, but you could just, you can just tell he had like a presence about him that you don't really see about many people. So I was just, I was impressed by just his presence of, of how he was carrying himself and, and the respect that he got, the respect that he gave to everybody that came in contact with. I became a fan of his music maybe in the last two years or so. And I kind of went back and would listen to all of the stuff that he was doing. But, you know, I was more impressed by the, the, the person that he was. And that's what I'll always remember about him. So being that you live in Southern California, what do you what do you visually see as the impact of his passing right now in the community out there? Um, it's just devastating for the community for how many, you know, what he was trying to do in his community and what he was, you know, as many people as he employed and that he inspired, you know, from, you know, buying every child in the elementary school in the neighborhood sneakers, you know, and you know, the uh, STEM program, not just in L.A., but across the country. And the, the, the uh, you know, store was going to be a, a smart store. He just, he just was a visionary. And for him to be cut down like he was, it, it's, it's, it's heartbreaking because you knew that he was someone who was going to do so much for the community. And he wanted to do so much. And I kind of liken it to, I probably haven't felt like this since Tupac. And, you know, it's kind of weird because with, with Tupac, I was so close to the situation, you know. So it was like somebody in my family, you know, losing a family member. But even with Nip, even though I didn't know him, I feel the same way. And, wow. you know, the other thing that... I want to say about it, you know, Pac, Pac said that he may not change the world, but he'll, he'll, he'll spark the mind of, of the person that will, right? And Pac, you know, before he passed, he had, he had all these ideas and, and, and visions of things that he wanted to do in the community. You know, he wanted to start a restaurant and, you know, fashion and, and all of these plans that he had. A lot of it, he never even got to start because he was too busy dealing with his current situation with death row and trying to fulfill his obligation. But Nip actually took it a step further, and he actually did start these businesses and these programs and, and kind of put some of the things in motion that Pop was talking about that he wanted to do. So I believe that 
you know, eventually there, there's going to, someone's going to come along that's even going to take it a step further from being inspired by what Nip did, who was probably inspired by what Tupac did. And that's, and that's powerful here. And, you know, that comparison that you're, that you're making to the impact that he had similar to, to Tupac and, I know the whole rap community has expressed their condolences and the whole rap community has been taken back by Nipsey's loss. So how do you think this will affect the rap scene as a whole? You know, I don't know because, you know, what we have to get past is the initial shock. It's kind of funny because this is like my second time going through this or third if you want to count big and and but even so we said that and i know some of you guys won't remember but when we lost scott larat from boogie on productions these same conversations were going around you know even though heavy d wasn't you know he didn't die tragically like that but he was, he was such a good brother and he was doing a lot you know a person like that doesn't come along every day but these these circumstances and these situations don't happen every day so it's not like every rapper is going to walk outside their house and get gunned down, you know? So a lot of us don't believe that it could happen to us, but I just hope that we take from some of the, the examples of uplifting a young generation and try to affect our community in a positive way. And one thing I don't want, because I hear a lot of people talking about once you get out, you can't go back. I hope that that's not what the, the lasting thought or that's what, that's what people take from this because I do believe that you should be able to go back and, and try to affect your community in a positive way. And just because this happened to them doesn't mean that we shouldn't do it. What's your whole take on the whole Nipsey is a modern-day Tupac? Um, you know, I like to stay away from, oh, he's the modern-day Tupac or he was the next Tupac, because did we say that Tupac was the modern-day Bob Marley? We didn't. Tupac was Tupac, and Nipsey was Nipsey. Me being around Pac, Tupac was the, he was the most, his work ethic was unlike anybody that I've ever seen, and I've never seen it since. He had a drive and a de determination like I haven't encountered. And just from what I can see from afar and what I know, it seems like, Yes, he had that same thing, and I don't, you know, and I don't, I don't say that lightly. So Tucker, why don't you um, talk about the impact that you've seen in the Atlanta community, especially like the AUC? Like, how have you seen that everybody's been taking this loss? Well, yeah, I know. Well, personally, for me, I, I listened. Well, I first heard Nipsey in, in middle school, and I. I hadn't listened to him consistently, but I'd always heard his music throughout the years. And and when I first heard the news, I had called my best friend, and he was he was going crazy. He didn't believe it. And I remember seeing on Instagram all through and and hearing just people on campus. You know, everybody's taken back. I remember um, there was there was an alpha probate recently on on Morehouse's campus, and after the probate was over. And in just the middle of, you know, the families and the friends all congratulating their brothers, they started playing Nipsey, um, you know, to pay respect for his death. And it was just a beautiful sight to see how his music, you know, was able to 
bring every everybody together. So it, people are really are really taken back, and even if they they are from California, aren't from California, they had that respect for Nipsey because what he did in the in the community. Right. And he had bars. Right. <laughs> exactly. His 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 music you, 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 was was undeniable. It, 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 he spoke it in the music. Right. So with that, do you think that? Um, well, both of you, like he was up for a Grammy. What, what's y'all thoughts on Victory Lab? His last work. Before before you go, Money B, I, I just know that Victory Lab. I, I just feel sad that that's the last piece of work that we'll we'll be able to have from Nip. And and you even heard in Victory Lab, he was, you know, laying the 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 groundwork for what what he was trying to do and what he was doing in the community. So. It's just sad to see that that's going to be the last piece of work that, you know, we get from him. Yeah, it was, that, that album was, is, is a classic. And, and, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be so sure that that is the last that you hear because, you know, a lot of us, we, we do so much work that who knows, maybe there's something that he's working on that, that possibly may come out in the future, you know, especially if it's, if it's, taken care of by people that care about him, meaning that not somebody finding his files and just throwing it out there, but somebody actually finishing some work that he was doing that he wanted to be out there. You know, because I, I, some of the stuff that they did with the Tupac's music, I really didn't agree with. But, um, you know, some of it, I'm glad that I got to hear. Yep. And, uh, Janae and I were actually talking about it earlier, how, you know, Nipsey touched a lot of people, not just people from L.A., from California, from Crenshaw, but people, you know, all across the country and even the world, including journalists who are covering his life and death. What do you think about the coverage of his life and death so far um, from a, a media standpoint? You know, one thing that... <clears throat> kind of upset me is that I think in the media, especially in mainstream media, people will just assume things or, or I think sometimes information is put out there to skew the public's perception. And I say that to say like, you know, the next morning I'm looking at, I think it was LA times. They put out something that was like, well, it's believed to be gang related. And I'm like, how is it gang related? And you don't have the guy, you know, to know what the what 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 was the relation? You know, just out there, it's gang related, or it was a bad business deal, you know, which it wasn't true. And the media will put anything out there before they get all the information, and 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 it can be damaging. So me and Tucker had a debate earlier. And we were talking, well, my point was just that I feel like there's certain things revolving this situation that only people who are from that area, essentially like California, can kind of have a certain feeling towards this that other people may not be able to have. And I understand like everybody can, obviously everybody can be upset, pay grievances, all of that. But I feel like there's like a deeper, like an extra layer that you kind of have to be from that community to really grasp. And um, you talked earlier about <clears throat> the people that, the major passings that you've experienced, like Park, um, Biggie, um, Heavy D, people like that. 
but it's like Biggie was in the East Coast. So do you feel like that same, do you have that same impact? Like Biggie was a major death, but like, you know, obviously you were closer to Pac than Biggie, but you know what I'm saying? Like that's a different coast. Do you feel different when it's like further away, you weren't really in that area or what do you think? About no, that? Absolutely. Like I said, this, you know, this, this has affected me more than, than, than Biggie's death really. And it's, and it's for the exact reason that you speak about. It's like, you know, you, we know people that talk exactly like that, dress exactly like that. The places that he's talking about in his songs are places that, you know, I, I frequent normally. And I and I actually knew Biggie. You know, we weren't great friends, but I but I knew him through pot, and we were cool. But I probably couldn't relate to that as much as somebody from Brooklyn. You know, who who knew you know, who knew the neighborhood he came from, and it will always hit closer to home to people that are from this area and in any area where a tragedy happens to someone from your community. You just relate to it a little more. No, I mean I, I, I completely agree and I just I just know that Nipsey was beloved in LA. And Man. my only thing is I was just confused as to why, you know, somebody in LA we know we all know his his, his gang relation was Crip, and no matter if you were Crip or Blood in L.A., and I know that, you know, people had respect for Nipsey. So I was just confused as to why somebody in that area would, you know, do that to him. That was the only debate that me and uh, Janet were having earlier. Yeah, it's just I can't, I can't, I can't wrap my head around that either. It's like, especially somebody from the area, you know who that is. Like you said, he was beloved by everybody in L.A. as far as, from what I know, Bloods, Crips, whatever. So it's just, it's, it's, it's confusing to me. It's just hard to, it's just hard to, to wrap your mind around. Or it's like, you know, why would a, a black man <clears throat> kill Malcolm X? Understanding everything that he was trying to do for black people. You just can't. I just don't understand it. And so, like, nope. a question for all of y'all, for both of y'all to answer before we close out. Just this sure. whole go- going back to your hood, where you came from, and making it better, even though you've already, you know, made it out, essentially. Um, we discussed, like, kind of already, like, thoughts about that. But really, like, what should happen moving forward? Like, is this more so on the community's effort, like, to, you know, really take care of its people or, you know, is it better just to help from afar? Like what should be the next move? Well, that's the, that's the confusing part about it because I don't know what, what lesson you can take from it because, you know, the, the obvious one and the one that I don't like is people saying, well, see, that's why you should not go back or, you know, that, let that be a lesson to you. You can't hang around in your, in your, in your neighborhood, but, I would be a hypocrite saying that because when when I go home to Oakland, I'm I'm my mom still lives in <laughs> in the neighborhood, you know, and I mm-hmm. go to see my friends in the neighborhood, you know, it's it's where I know, and I just don't, you know, when I'm there, I don't feel I don't feel in danger, I don't feel threatened, even though I know that anything can happen, and it's some of these neighborhoods are in neighborhoods that things do happen. 
maybe the lesson should be see what happens when someone from a community that has less be that determined and that uh, driven, that that dedicated to what he was, you know, and be that focused that they can achieve what he did achieve and maybe even, even more. No, I, I think I think no matter where she was from, I think, you know, him starting all those initiatives and being the philanthropist he was outside of rap, you know, doing what he was doing for the community, I think that was powerful. And like Money B said earlier in the call, for those people who didn't know Nipsey before he, he passed, now they do know, and now they're going to go back and listen to his music and, and hear what he was saying. And so I think this and what I'm seeing, especially from people our age and millennials and people are, are I think, sparked by his death. And now they're they're aware of, you know, all the things he was doing for the community. And people are, are feeling a sense of uh, community amongst each other since he passed away. So I think I think this this sparks something for, you know, the, the, the younger community. Yeah, you can, you can go back and, and <clears throat> follow his blueprint. I don't think you have to live in the community you come from to affect or help that community. If you have a specific um, goal or purpose, you can implement it by, you know, making sure that you involve the people that are in that community. Wow. That's a really great place to end it. But before we do that, can you just um, get us caught up to date about what you're doing right now, music and life and everything? Oh, me? Yes, you. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, right now, myself and new artist, Young Hump, who's the newest member of Digital Underground, we're kind of representing the Digital Underground brand. So we're touring, we're releasing new music under the moniker Money V and Young Hump. We actually have a new single and video dropping on the 14th, which is in about 10 days. And the video we actually shot in uh, Budapest, Hungary, because we just did a short um, tour of Europe. And and I manage and, and control the digital underground merchandise. So, you know, T-shirts, hats, hoodies, whatnot. DUMerch.com, that's D like digital underground. And <clears throat> finishing up my autobiography, which oh, you know, wow. I talk about. Okay. Talk about you know, being a child growing up in the Black Panther Party where, you know, DWP Newton actually handed me my diploma when I graduated from elementary school with the Black Panther Party School to growing up or being a teenager in the mid to late 80s where, you know, the whole crack epidemic happened and having to navigate through that into the early 90s with Digital Underground and Tupac and all of the things that happened through that area up until, you know, what I'm doing now and all the all the the life lessons that I've gathered just kind of going through all of that. You know, a lot of people don't know. They you know, they think of money beers, think of Digital Underground, the Humpty Dance and, and that's it. And maybe Tupac, but it's you know I lived a life, you know, I I I consider myself almost like a hip hop uh, Forrest Gump, you know, because a lot of things that have happened in hip hop that people talk about or that that are are remembered or spoken about, you know, I was actually present, you know, like when um, 
trouble T-Roy passed. I was there. You know, I was present when Ice Cube had that big fight at the New Music Seminar. I've been in the elevator with Eazy-E when he, him and Tupac pulling out pistols because they think they're about to get into it with some death row people or whatever. And this is before, which is funny because Tupac actually ended up with death row. But, you know, it's just a, a lot of stuff that's happened in my life. You know, from, it's my autobiography, and what's unique about it is I, I actually have a full soundtrack that'll go with the book. So it's like a multimedia experience. Oh, and I also manage a young artist, little Mikey TMB, who's doing well. If you're in Atlanta, you might even heard of him. I know his music does well in like the southeast regions, but he's from East Oakland. And, you know, I'm just staying active, raising my four-year-old, <laughs> take care of my daddy, loving my wife. You know, just stay in touch with me at MoneyB69, Twitter and Instagram. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you. We appreciate it. Oh, thank you guys for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Roden Fellows Podcast. Feel free to hit us up with any questions or comments. You can follow me on Twitter at Janae and Adams. That's J-A-N-A-E-N-A-D-A-M-S. And you can follow me on Instagram at T-U-C-K-T-5-2. That's TuckT52. Cool. You guys can follow me on Twitter at W.C. Roden. That's W-C-R-H-O-D-E-N. This show is produced by the wonderful Aaron Matthewson. Special thanks to Tarika Foster-Brasby and the ESPN Digital Audio Content Team. Uh, get all the HBCU 468 podcasts as well as The Right Time with Bamani Jones and Morning Roast by subscribing to The Undefeated on the Listen tab of the ESPN app. Join us next week for another HBCU podcast, and don't forget to make The Undefeated your go-to site for a soulful look at sports and entertainment. Have a great week, everyone. <laughs>